the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What do we do as we're losing faith in institutions? And then the joy of imagining heaven. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Steve Koble. My name is Brian Fromm. It's great to have you staying with us here on a Thursday afternoon. We're getting closer and closer to the weekend. Grateful for Steve being in for Aubrey all week. Steve will be with us again tomorrow. Close out the week, and then Aubrey will be back again on Monday. All right, Steve, uh, I know that you're in the midst of all craziness of life. Sometimes we can miss what's going on in the news, but uh, I was watching, and I haven't caught up in an update, so it might have been taken care of by now but yet again uh the republicans and the democrats in the house and the senate they can't figure out how to even make the government work right now like uh they they are arguing and we are uh when we might have crossed it by now i i watched this only a couple days ago and like you i've got just a lot going on but uh they're trying to or maybe not even trying to stave off a government shutdown and what a government shutdown does is it doesn't fund the government and the worst part about that is uh people in the military don't get paid the tsa agents don't get paid anybody who works for the federal government doesn't get paid even though it's still expected that they will work which seems completely backwards to me like if somebody came to me and like hey we need you to keep working but we're not going to pay you for it uh i think we'd have a conversation there but uh, the, this is brought about, about for me, Steve. This is a long-winded way of getting to this point. I feel like when things like this keep happening, culturally, we've pretty much lost any um, respect, but also confidence in our government. And mm. uh, it also feels like culturally we're losing um, – respect and confidence in institutions in general. Think about how people talk about mm. the school system. Uh, you could see where we're going to get to eventually here. Are people losing yeah. confidence in the church and how do we do that? But let's start with the government. Am I right about that? Do you think this generation looks at the government like they're just a bunch of clowns? They're all kind of in it for themselves and we can't trust anything. Like it feels like that's where we're kind of the majority of people are at these days. Yeah, you know, I remember when uh, the attack on the Capitol happened and some pastoral friends uh, were really like still like, I don't know. I don't know if if uh, Joe Biden really won the election and then mm-hmm. uh, going back to I was sitting in a in a lounge in a group of uh, business guys uh, after uh, like a happy hour time saying the same kind of conversation that mm. like we don't we don't know. And I, I kind of get to the place like if that's the case, then we we like where is democracy? How does democracy move forward if right. um, if people aren't trusting the, the institution itself? 
And so, yeah, that's a scary, it's, I guess for me, it's just like, that's a scary thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. It is this, and it's this idea that they just can't function. Like, uh, I don't know, you and I aren't that old, but I remember when I was a kid, at least my perception was Republicans and Democrats disagreed, but they weren't like, that's the enemy over there and we can't work with them. And I know there's more center minded people in the world, but it feels like everybody who gets all the oxygen, but also they are literally unable to fund the government just so it functions right now in its most basic ways. And they, they, they don't have the ability to compromise even to that level. And it's like people, you know, like you said, people in the military and people, TSA agents and others who are going to bear the brunt of this. Um, yeah. but again, it's just, is it uh, maybe maybe it's this is an overstatement, but it does feel like culturally starting with politics. But I also think the church falls into this. It feels like more and more we don't trust institutions in general. We just don't trust, you know, politicians, education, denominations, churches, whatever else it might yeah. be. And that feels problematic to me that that people. Uh, look at churches sideways and go, well, what are they up to? Or they look at politicians and it's always what's their angle uh, and that we don't have a trust. Am I right on that? Does it feel like it has seeped down into churches? I'm talking more culturally, kind of big picture, the way they view politicians that seep down into other institutions. Yes, it's it's interesting because I think culturally there's a there's a distinction uh, too. like I think in the black church, people still trust the institution itself uh, who are a part of that particular institution. But some people would say um, ethnically, like, you know, generationally, there's a a cultural distinction between uh, ethnicities and their trust of institutions. Mm. Um, So I think I think, too, like one of the things that I think about is like, uh, I think John Mark Comer, one of those guys uh, that he does some of his podcasts with, talks about this generation being the generation of the death of expertise. So because you've got yes. Google at your fingertips, yes. you can look up anything that you need to look up and you don't think that you need to go to a school to study that particular thing for eight years and, and you know better than the doctor now or you know better than uh, – you know, and if Donald Trump can become the president of the United States, uh, and and no shade, just just subjectively, if a celebrity can become um, uh, the president of the United States, then do you really need expertise um, in any particular field? So I I think I think there's there's a combination of things that go into the the mistrust of institutions, and part of that, in in my view, is that. Like everybody thinks that they're uh, experts in their in in oh, any good. respective field. Yeah, yeah, it's that's really good. You and I talked the other day about just kind of the frustration sometimes in churches where it feels like people are like, "You know, I've been in church my whole life. I can tell you how to do it. You should do it this." And mm-hmm. I want to like with all humility say, "Hey, I got twenty years in right now. <laughs> like, I kind of <laughs> know a little bit." how this works, understanding how people look towards politicians and all these other institutions. How do we as the church fight against that? Uh, Like I I would answer that first this way. 
it feels like uh, we are in a time right now because our politicians lack character and integrity and humility. Like the bar for that is so much more important right now for pastors and churches. Like it feels like the way to answer my own question the, now more than ever, the church must model character, integrity, mm-hmm. lack of hypocrisy, all of that kind of stuff. Sadly, I'm not sure we're doing great at it, but man, that seems to be the thing needed right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 um, I think that people are, and we talked about this earlier in the week, people are looking for community. So mm. the church does have something to, to offer them. But I do think that there's um, a certain level of hesitation uh, to your point in terms of like, are those people good people? And that's, mm. you know, that's a shame that that would ever be a consideration. Um, but I, I think it's just a, a reality of, of you know, kind of what's what's been in the, the mainframe of social media and, and uh, out in the public sphere. And there's just more stories being told of hypocrisy, you know, that's that people are able to, it's like the double, double-edged sword of information is that you feel like you're expert at everything, mm-hmm. but then also you're becoming more aware of what is, is actually happening. So that's a good thing, but it also uh, paints a black eye on the church sometimes. No doubt. So uh, it just got me thinking, hopefully the government can get those, you know, military leaders, uh, personnel and TSA paid. Hopefully they can come to this, but character, integrity, all of it. So important right now. Well, we're glad that you're staying with us. Coming up next, uh, Christina today said, talked about this to pastors are wondering still about church members who never came back after COVID. There's a new survey out that sheds some light on that. We're going to talk about that next year on the common good AM 1160 hope for your life. Uh, Christianity today was running this article about the long-term impact of COVID-19. So it says pastors are wondering about church members who never came back post-pandemic. And new research shows disagreement over COVID-19 policies drove changes in attendance, but a lot of it is still a mystery. It's amazing to me that we're still talking about COVID and the ramifications. Some churches have seen their attendance spike back up. Others... Uh, you know, never came back up to where they were. But this is speaking more to pastors going, there's just some people that never, like, I have no idea where they are. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if they're in another church or this or that. I'm curious, just your experience uh, coming out of COVID. And now we're like, you know, two, three years out. What's been kind of your guy? Have you seen people who never came back and you don't really know where they are? Have you seen new people? What have you seen at Renewal Church of Chicago? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, I came on staff at our church right as the pandemic started. No so, way. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So um, for me um, and and being, you know, in the city, Chicago has a, a real transience to it. So, mm-hmm. Uh, there's people coming and going. So I'm, I'm used to that. And so I want to say for the most part, the people that I know, um, maybe they have gone to a different church or they have uh, made their way to a different city. Um, and then and then there's been a, a influx of people, too. So um, it's been a mixture. I feel like, you know, we baptized, I think, 15 people last year. Wow. Um, and and about 10 or 11 of those were uh, new believers. Um, so 
there's yeah there's just a, a mixture of people and and so i don't i don't really feel like i can speak well on it because of the transient of the city yeah that's interesting. Now, something they found in this Christianity Today research, they found that um, <clears throat> in the Protestant world, majority um, African-American congregations have been hit the hardest attendance-wise. Uh, and uh, But I know at our church, like, so we're out in the suburbs, so it's less transient. Um, my church is pretty much back. We're a little smaller, but pretty much back to where we were. Yeah. But it's a, it's just a different church. Like, it's just a different church. Huh. Uh, and I know that happens in three-year, four-year cycles regularly anyway, but it's like COVID just sped that up totally. Like, there are people who were regular parts of my church pre-COVID that I don't know where they are. I don't know if they're in a church. Um, they, I've reached out to them, and maybe, you know, it's just – it's like they ghost. It's like <laughs> there's gone. and. Uh, <laughs> So it is like this weird thing, and maybe that's I'm, – I'm hoping that they're in other churches and such, but um, yeah, it's been weird. What do you, How are you in general – let's take it not just COVID. How are you in general with the comings and goings of people? Again, you said the city is an interesting place, but oftentimes when people leave churches, they don't even tell you they're leaving. Like how – Oh, yeah. How do you, how does your so how do you keep in a good spot? Because I'm just gonna lay my cards on the table. That's probably my most discouraging thing to deal with. The thing that saps me of my energy the most. Sure. Uh, how do you do with that? And how do you process those things? You know, I guess I guess I kind of try to to keep an open hand in terms of knowing that like God may call people to different places. And uh, the thing that I get most discouraged with. And I try to like say this as much as possible in the membership meeting. Mm. Uh, like if, if you're processing uh, a change in your life, a change uh, in your job, a change, uh, the idea of a change of cities, like I'd love to process that with you. Um, not to say mm. that like, I'm going to, we're going to try to keep you here just like, the process of being a part of the conversation, you know what I mean? Uh, and for a lot of people, you know, the past uh, few months, you know, you just get an email saying, Hey, I moved back to Texas or, Hey, I'm moving to, you know, back to so-and-so or I'm moving to here. And, and you never got to even process that. Sometimes you didn't even get to say goodbye. Mm. Um, and so just the, the challenge with that, I, I really, and I get that it's hard to, for people to say goodbye. And so they, they, maybe it's easier to write an email. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's also like, it's also really hard. And so I think that for me, it's, it's a little easier because the rhythm is more normal. Uh, the rhythm is just like, yeah, there's, there's seasons for things, you know, there, but there's also people who left and moved and they hate the new place that they're in or, you know, they, it's taken them a year to find a church, you know, et cetera, and things that you could have helped them uh, process if they would have let you. Yeah, it it, it is hard. It's, I struggle so much when people leave and ghost you. Like I'm, I like to think of, we, like you said, in membership meetings or from the front, we like to talk about, hey, we're a family, we're a family, we're a family. And I think COVID really taught me oh, we've got some work to do there. Like we really have some work to do around community. I'd love for you to take a minute and speak to the person uh, who hasn't gone back to church since COVID. 
and it's not for health reasons. They just got out of practice. So they still believe in Jesus. They're still, you know, but maybe pre-COVID, they were going to church twice a month or whatever, started watching online and just, it became nice to sleep in or it became nice to not deal with it or whatever else. What's your encouragement? Let's try to encourage those people to go back to church and find a church. What would you yeah. say to those people? Yeah, so I I just... I would say, you know, there's 59 one another passages in the New Testament. And the meaning for all of that is that the New Testament assumes that you're doing life in community with other people. Mm -hmm. And I have often, um, you know, one of the things that I've become more and more convinced of is that we are like our greatest impetus for change and growth. Um, I think in Western American world, we think it's just information. Like if I, mm. if I read a new book or if That's I right. go to a master class on this or, uh, et cetera. And, uh, and if we're honest with ourselves, if we really like pulled back the curtain of our lives and, 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 uh, and just saw it for what it was, what we would see is the major trajectory changing points in our lives has always been connected to relationships. And so relationships are the major impetus for our own growth, our own, mm -hmm. our own change. And, and so the, so that being like the, like you're built for that. That's what you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're made for. God wants to shape and form you through relationships and connections. And so one, you can't read the new Testament rightly apart from a community of faith. That's so right. You can't even interpret it rightly. Uh, to the greatest impetus for your own growth and change isn't information, it's relationships. Mm. Um, and, and then three, uh, the regular rhythm of being in a community of faith, of just singing with other followers of Jesus and reminding each other that you believe this together um, is, is like a, a trellis that God has given to us for our own spiritual growth. So mm -hmm. I would always say to somebody, if, if you're honest with yourself, like the reality is if you honest about your own spiritual state right now, and you're not a part of a local church, that your spiritual journey is not flourishing. Um, you, mm. You're not flourishing in your walk with Jesus. And, and part of that is because God has made that institute, uh, institution of that regular rhythm of Sunday gathering as a vital part of your spiritual growth. Uh, sorry, you paused out there. We will edit this portion, but I'll just close it here. That's a good word, man. Uh, I would encourage people that, as Steve said, you, we can't grow without one another. That's the point of church that we spur one another on. We hold one another accountable. We, uh, uh, we run the race with each other. And if you're one of those people who has not found their way back, go find a church, get back in, get into that community. And as Steve said, it is there that we begin to again flourish. Well, coming up next, uh, want to talk about a difficult and confusing phrase in our culture right now, Christian nationalism. Saw an article of Christianity Today trying to define it and then asking uh, some hard questions about it. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
All right, Steve, we're going to dive into the deep end. <laughs> Let's get ourselves oh, wow. in some trouble. You're ready? I was reading over at uh, Christianity Today. They were trying to define the phrase that everybody's throwing around right now, Christian nationalism, mm. uh, and have a conversation about what's the misunderstandings about it, but also what are the problems of it? So I want to read their definition uh, as you know, especially in the very conservative world, there's books literally coming out. There's a book, a big book that was just out called In Support of Christian Nationalism. Like this is kind of a dividing line right now between what I would say uh, really conservative people and everybody else. But uh, Christianity Today, uh, let's see, who was this author? This author is Paul Miller. Uh, Paul Miller is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University and also a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So uh, that is, um, you might remember, that's where uh, Russell Moore used to be at. So he he basically takes questions and tries to, so what is nationalism? What is patriotism? What is Christian nationalism? How, if at all, is it dangerous? That's kind of his way here. And he says this. Under the question, what is Christian nationalism? He says, Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a, quote, Christian nation, not merely as an observation, but about American history but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be into the future. Scholars like Samuel Huntington have made a similar argument when he argued that America is defined by its, quote, Anglo-Protestant past, and that we will lose our identity and our freedom if we do not preserve our cultural inheritance. He goes on to say, Christian nationalists do not reject the First Amendment and do not advocate for theocracy, But they do believe that Christianity should enjoy a privileged position in the public square. The term Christian nationalism is relatively new, and its advocates generally do not use it of themselves, but it accurately describes American nationalists who believe American identity is inextricable, inextricable, I think I got that right, from Christianity. So that's a, I thought that was a good working definition from him here. What do you think about that? What do you think about that as a definition? And then let's just unpack what we think about Christian nationalism as a whole. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be a pretty uh, exhaustive definition. Like mm-hmm. it, it catches everything on uh, on different angles and sides. Um and I, I just think that the idea of it is misunderstood in terms of the history of Christianity in the United States, because, you know, for much of and, and even though that the idea of Protestants uh, leaving Europe to come to the United States is, is a true statement, um, they're leaving to seek religious freedom. Mm. And so I think that that's more so the 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 kind of foundation of. Uh, America's um, um, kind of beginnings is is this idea of religious freedom. Um, and then secondly, I think that when you look at, when you like really have a good understanding of history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you and Tim Keller would be somebody who would promote this idea um, is that like the, the ethics that we have for equality are very much rooted in Christian ethics. 
Mm. So like our ethic itself for um, the valuing uh, women in society and valuing, uh, making sure people's lives matter, right? Like hum- yeah. human beings matter um, is based in an ethic that's that's rooted in, in Christianity. So I would say the, the foundational um, ethics of the way that our society is set up is is inextricably uh, cannot be pulled from Christianity. Pulled out of Christianity can't be pulled out of it because it's the the basis for how we um, how we uh, operate in terms of our own ethics towards mm. one another. Now, you know, like uh, certain people would say that we operate as um, we want the benefits of the kingdom without submitting to the lordship of the king. Oh, that'll preach, man. <laughs> right. So even even the moral issues that that we're fighting, there's two there's the Christian ethic of how that gets applied on both sides is trying to be applied, even if you're progressive or you're not progressive. So the idea of individuality and being able to make choices over your body um, mm. is a comes from the foundational roots of our uh, our Christian uh, ethical roots. Um, and so it's just a matter of how you apply that and submit it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But mm. I can't force somebody to submit themselves to the Lordship uh, of Jesus Christ. That's something that happens as an act of grace through faith. So taking this less from the side of the country and more from the side of the church, because this is, feels like a new phenomenon, right? Like I grew up be patriotic. Like I, mm-hmm. Aubrey and I always joke, yeah. like I put out the flag on the 4th of July, go to the parade, all of this stuff. Um, and grew up in churches and in places where the American flag was even in the sanctuary of the church, right? Like, so that's a thing. But now there seems to be this movement of we have to make America a Christian nation. Like his definition talked about it being of a privileged status, which seems for the church to confuse, like you said, not only who our Lord and King is, but what the kingdom we are living for is, right? Like this idea that we are not primarily concerned with the kingdom of America. I love America and I want it to flourish, but that ultimately my King and kingdom is different now and forever. And this idea about making America more Christian, while great. Like we want the ethic and all that stuff again, can't be our main purpose and what the agenda that we're pushing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you hit it right on the nose, Brian. Like, um, and, and it, it, you know, this is, gets a little nerdy, but like, what is our eschatology? Like is, Mm -hmm. is America the promised land? Is it the new heavens and the new earth? Um, and the answer is no. And our citizenship is in heaven. Um, and so there is like, just like, um, just like our ethnic heritage, right. Is it doesn't become a secondary, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't change that that's your ethnic heritage, Mm -hmm. but within Christianity, my Christian identity is my primary identifier. And secondly, my ethnic identity is a secondary identifier, which is the Mm. same thing when it comes to, uh, when it comes to our patriotism, like my identity as a Christ follower is my primary identity. Mm. And my secondary identity is being a citizen of the United States. Um, and so I, I feel like there's just a desire to, to, 
um, subvert the two or to make make the two the same. That is it. That is well put. I think we got this. I think we got this. But I would encourage people, <laughs> especially at election time, this stuff gets really complicated. Uh, like I said, there's a well-known book out right now called The Case for Christian Nationalism or In Support of Christian Nationalism. There's another book coming out by that same title. Like you're going to hear this more and more and more. And as churches and as individuals, we've got to go, okay, who's my king? What's my kingdom? How do I live as a good citizen now? with still being a citizen of heaven. And coming up next, we're going to close the show this way. Uh, speaking of heaven, Randy Alcorn wrote a blog called The Joy of Imagining Heaven. Uh, how does that provide joy and perspective for us now? We're going to end the show that way uh, here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. As we close out Thursday's show, hope you have a great night planned for yourself, and we're glad that you're spending some time with us. All right, Steve, as we always say here, we like to end the show with either something funny or something encouraging, something to challenge people. And I found this blog post from Randy Alcorn. Now, if you don't know of Randy Alcorn, he writes at Eternal Perspective Ministries. He kind of wrote the book on heaven, which is a really cool thing to be. Like, I'm the guy who wrote the book on heaven. But if you're ever, you know, thinking about heaven, and, and he wrote just a big book on heaven that is really, really well done. So that's Randy Alcorn. Uh, and that's kind of his focus. And so he wrote, uh, a blog post the other day called The Joy of Imagining Heaven. Um, and just the importance of using our imagination when it comes to heaven. Uh, he quotes Alistair McGrath, who wrote this, to speak of imagining heaven does not imply or entail that heaven is a fictional, fictional notion constructed by deliberately disregarding the harsh realities of everyday world. We are able to inhabit the mental images we create and then to anticipate the delight of finally entering the greater reality to which they correspond. So he's talking about the importance of just picturing heaven uh, and having that eternal perspective. I got to be honest, Steve, that's not something I do very often. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about heaven, not even picturing what will it be like, but I get so just into what's, what's happening today, what's going on right yeah. now. And that's important. That's, that's not something to feel guilty about, but this is a good reminder. Our citizenship is in heaven. There's eternity to be spent with him and to spend some time, not just thinking about it, but imagining what it will be like. This feels like uh, an important uh, encouragement from Alcorn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, especially I think because oftentimes we, we have like this sort of endless worship service uh, kind of idea of, yeah. of heaven where we're going to be singing songs as long as, uh, you know, as long as we can stand it until we move on to the next song. And, and for many <laughs> of us, I think that like we think of being with Jesus is like, man, that's going to be that's going to be really, really cool. And in our like mm -hmm. piousness and our, um, our reverence for God, we, we want to think that it'll be like, um, a fun experience, but I think sometimes we don't actually think it'll be, uh, an incredible experience. And so I have to say that Alcorn really helped me, um, mm. understand this for myself several years ago when I read his book on heaven and he you, said you something, yeah, he said something in that book that stuck with me is that, and, and I, I thought about it as I was teaching through um, God coming to the people of Israel about Sinai. 
and um, it being like the whole mountain shook, right? Mm. Um, and 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 people said like, tell God to stop speaking, or or we'll surely die. Like this <laughs> sort of like sense. And and what Alcorn says in the book is like, imagine the source of everything that you've ever found beautiful mm. being present in one moment in time. And so mm. just thinking about God being the source of the greatest uh, musician that you ever heard if Taylor Swift is the greatest musician that you ever heard, or, <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, the source of, uh, of everything in life itself that you've ever said that took my breath away, or that was amazing. Mm. And all of that being present in one moment in time, as we take in the presence of God, um, and, and actually be able to do that because in other portions of scripture, it talks about no, no person can, can stand in the presence of God and live. Um, and all of those things being true without the presence of sin, um, without the anxiety, without the, and when we talk about, or the effects of sin, right? Like yeah. without yeah. anxiety, without, um, figuring like trying to figure out how you're going to project uh how other people are going to view you uh, as you say this particular thing or um being able to have friendship without uh, you know forms of competition that are unhealthy and um all of these different things um i i think it's it's absolutely i mean it, it makes living rightly in the now uh, yeah. make more sense yeah yeah Let's unpack that. You went to right where I want to go. Was it, I think it was C.S. Lewis. When we don't know as Christians who said something, we always say C.S. Lewis. But I actually think this one was C.S. Lewis <clears throat> who said, uh, it is the people who are the most heavenly minded who do the most earthly good. It was something like mm -hmm. that, uh, which is a little bit backwards from what we would think. Like you would normally think, okay, people who are heavenly minded, they're just going to, you know, that's all they're thinking about and they're not going to do anything here. But Lewis's point is it's the people focused on heaven uh, who have that right perspective, who then are the most earthly good, who do the most good here. Uh, how is that possible? Like, what is he saying there? Because I do believe he's right that when we've got that perspective right, but help let's unpack that a little yeah, bit for yeah. people. You know, I think some of it has to do with like, we're not living for the moment. Uh, we're mm -hmm. not living as if everything in this short span of life is everything that there is. So, um, so then I, th I think that there's a level of appreciation that you have for the, the things that you have in life because of that. I think that there's uh, less angst um, because you're, you're not saying uh, YOLO, you know what I mean? You only mm -hmm. live once. Um, you're not saying I got to, uh, experience all the experiences there are to experience on this side of, of heaven, or I'm missing out on stuff in life because, um, because I'm trying to live in obedience to God. Um, mm. but actually life and life to the full is represented in my obedience to God. And I'm actually becoming more human, uh, through my obedience to God. That's right. And then that's going to be fully realized in, in heaven. So, uh, Man, I, I mean, I'm curious to know what you think, Brian, but uh, I, I just keep thinking that without that, um, it's, it feels a little bit like drudgery here in the, in the now, but yep. if this is that, all there is, yeah. yeah, it feels like delight. Yeah. A couple of things come to mind is 
I think it fuels us to go, okay, I'm eternally minded. So therefore I'm going to do what Jesus did and invest my time, energy, resources, all of it in eternal things and things that make an eternal difference. Uh, it sets up our perspective and our hierarchy, not only for eternity, but for now. Uh, what does it mean to, um, like Jesus says, you know, make your deposits in heaven, you know, where moth and rust don't destroy. And so I think that's one. I also think it helps us get the right perspective of the difficulties of life, right? Revelation says there's coming a day where these things won't happen, uh, where there won't be cancer and death and sickness and struggle and sin. But so we, that can fuel our hope now that even as we're living in that already, not yet, we can go, okay, there's coming a day and that can fuel us as well. And so I, th- I the encouragement we would leave you with is think about heaven just a little bit more today and then a little bit more the next day. Like this is not like, oh, I've got to become a monk and just focus. On. That's not what we're saying. But as Alcorn says, imagine heaven, think about heaven, um, give it some of your attention and then ask yourself, how does that change things now? How does that order my life now? Uh, so that we can live as C.S. Lewis said, uh, those who are the most heavenly minded do the most earthly good. Uh, I think that that's, that's the perspective. That's the order that we need. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you, regardless of where you're at today, especially if you're struggling. Uh, we pray that that's an encouragement for you. Steve and I'll be back again one more time again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Steve Kobo, my name is Brian Fromm. I'm, you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com